0: Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, said the physicist Robert Oppenheimer in 1945 as he watched the first ever nuclear weapon explode in the New Mexico desert. Standing in a shelter fully 10 kilometres from where the bomb went off, Oppenheimer and his team reported the air around them turning hot as an oven. In the distance, a vast firestorm erupted upwards and outwards, followed by a mushroom cloud billowing seven and a half miles into the air. In his official report for the White House, Brigadier General Thomas F. Farrell of the United States Army Air Forces wrote how the black desert night was suddenly illuminated with a clarity and a beauty that cannot be described. He recalled a roaring sound which, he wrote, warned of doomsday and made us feel that we puny things were blasphemous to dare tamper with forces previously reserved for the Almighty. Oppenheimer's epoch-defining weapon would be deployed twice by the US Air Force in the weeks that followed. Two single, ten-foot-long bombs, each weighing several tons, each killing tens of thousands of people in the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Those twin nuclear strikes of August 1945 brought an immediate end to the Second World War, a horrific climax to a conflict of unprecedented horrors. Hiroshima and Nagasaki both now thrive again, of course, and today both cities host wonderful, stunningly powerful peace museums as monuments to what happened there. They tell the stories of people going about their daily lives, working, shopping, walking to school, when from nowhere a gleaming white light in the sky turned them almost to dust. In some cases, only their shadows remained, scorched into a sandal or a paving stone, and now preserved for all of time. As I record this podcast today, almost 80 years later, pretty much every person on the planet has lived their life in the shadow of the nuclear threat. And we just got used to it, I guess. Which is kind of weird when you consider what's at stake. In the 1950s and 1960s, it must have felt so horribly real. But by the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, everything seemed to have changed, for good. The end of history was boldly proclaimed. By the start of the 21st century, the idea of an actual nuclear war seemed pretty far-fetched. And then a lot of things which have happened since the start of the 21st century have seemed pretty far-fetched. The world's worst terror attack played out on live TV in the middle of New York City. The most disastrous Western military incursions in decades, with hundreds of thousands killed across the Middle East. The worst financial meltdown since the Wall Street crash. The rise of nationalist, populist, post-truth governments in many of the world's largest countries, including the United States. A global pandemic which killed millions and left the rest of us locked in our homes. Safe to say the 21st century has not yet been the wondrous age of jetpacks and moon safaris we were promised. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised then that almost from nowhere, 2022 has brought with it an unwelcome revival of the spectre of
1: nuclear
2: war. President Putin has ordered Russian military commanders to put the country's strategic
0: nuclear forces on special alert. He said any nation that attempts to interfere with his invasion would be met with consequences they have never seen. He reminded everyone he's got nuclear weapons, which starts to set off people being worried. Vladimir Putin's saber-rattling on nuclear weapons last month, coming in the days immediately after his illegal and murderous invasion of Ukraine was a bolt from the blue, the sort of language we hoped we'd never hear again from a Russian leader, a message designed to intimidate the West. And, yes, it was certainly pretty unnerving to hear, to these sensitive ears anyway. And it got me wondering, is that it now? However this crisis plays out, are we back now to an age of nuclear tensions? How worried should we actually be?
2: I think we should be extremely concerned a leader from a nuclear power is floating the use of nuclear weapons is putting his nuclear deterrent on high combat readiness so i think we should take this
1: seriously i am worried the reality is in situations like that when people are left without an exit there is a tendency for them to try to escalate in order to get out of a situation
3: you uh, run the risk of him resorting to more extreme measures and certainly Within the military doctrines of the Soviet Union, the use of battlefield nuclear weapons is not excluded. So that is a very serious problem.
0: From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, and I still can't quite believe I'm having to say this, we're taking a cold, hard look at the chances of an actual nuclear war breaking out in Europe and how on earth, in retrospect, we managed to avoid one already. me, and I bet you are, a bit, then your main reference point for Cold War era nuclear Armageddon is probably Dr. Strangelove. Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. Stanley Kubrick's 1964 satire remains the definitive piece on a post-war nuclear arms race between the US and the Soviet Union, which had spiralled completely out of control.
4: Well, now, what happened is, um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. He ordered his planes to
3: attack your country. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you
0: think I feel about it? Watching the movie back now, it's a sharp reminder of how completely insane that whole period of human history actually was. But also of how many of those Cold War assumptions, the risks, the threats, the things that might go wrong, actually remain in place today.
1: The United States tested its first atomic weapon in 1945, then used bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki... This was the first and the only time that nuclear bombs were used in the times of war. And then uh, the Russians, of course, got their nuclear weapons in August 1949. This is the Russian historian
0: Sergei Radchenko, a distinguished professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies.
1: Now, that effort owed much to the efforts of the Soviet intelligence. The Manhattan Project was, of course, penetrated by Soviet spies. By 1949, the Soviets had their own atomic bomb. And then, in the course of the 1950s, both sides developed their nuclear weapons further. And we had a move towards thermonuclear weapons and also the development of rocketry missiles. In 1957, for example, the Soviets tested their first intercontinental ballistic missile, making America potentially vulnerable to Soviet nuclear attack. So, this is what historians call the nuclear revolution which created a situation where the two superpowers had the means to destroy one another and so had every reason to try to avoid a direct conflict.
0: What evolved during that Cold War period, and what actually remains the cornerstone, we hope, of global security today, was the theory of nuclear deterrence, the development of weapons so massively destructive that, supposedly, their very existence would prevent war rather than trigger one.
4: So the theory goes that deterrence basically is a concept about trying to influence an adversary without the actual use of force.
0: This is Dr. Kristin van Brusgaard, an expert on Russian nuclear protocols, military strategy and deterrence, based at the University of Oslo.
4: The initial idea is that the threat of a nuclear response should convince an adversary not to attack you because of his fear of this nuclear response. And then during the Cold War, after some time, you had two sides of a confrontation, that is, the United States and the Soviet Union, who both developed nuclear weapons and both developed capability to respond even after having been attacked. And this produced a situation that is commonly known as MAD, mutually assured destruction, where both sides would know that if they did attack the other side, they wouldn't be able to annihilate the capabilities of the other. Rather, they know that they would risk uh, massive retaliation. And so this condition of uh, mutual vulnerability or MAD produced, uh, according to many theorists and scholars and policymakers, a more stable situation between these two great powers because of this mutual concern that a conflict between them would uh, end in uh, nuclear Armageddon. So this is the way that many explain the peace that we have experienced between great powers since the end of the Second World War, the fact that we have not actually had a great power war uh, after 1945.
0: For people that don't understand quite how these weapons work, why would it not be possible just to wipe out one side's nuclear arsenal with a sort of preemptive strike?
4: So many nuclear armed states, including the United States and the Soviet Union, have developed a range of different weapons systems that are designed to be invulnerable to this type of attack. So both the United States and Russia today have what they call a nuclear triad of strategic nuclear weapons that are based on submarines, on airplanes, and on the land territory of each of them. And by developing this broad range of different systems, they try to ensure that no matter what the adversary does, there will always be some of those systems that are going to survive that type of attack. And for example, submarines carrying nuclear weapons are perceived as particularly invulnerable because it's difficult to determine where the adversary's submarines are. And so that constitutes a constant threat to the other side, even if one side would be able to strike, for example, the land-based missiles, which Uh, to some extent at least, would be the easiest missiles to target, that side would still have uh, his submarines carrying nuclear weapons and potentially also uh, their aircraft carrying nuclear weapons that would be able to uh, retaliate for such an attack.
0: The problem, of course, is that for all the theorising about deterrence and mutually assured destruction... There have nevertheless been multiple points during the past 70-odd years when we came remarkably close to blowing up half the planet. Here's Professor Sergei Radchenko.
1: It is interesting to reflect on how our own generation has mostly forgotten about the fear of living in nuclear shadow. I mean, think of moments like 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the two superpowers were on the brink of a nuclear conflict. Unfortunately, war was avoided. We now know today that in 1962 an outright nuclear exchange between the two powers was actually closer than we thought at the time.
4: The Soviet Union has decided to transform Cuba
0: into a base for communist aggression, into a base for putting all of the
3: Americas under the nuclear gun.
0: Now, you probably know this story well, but to refresh your memory, the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 was essentially a month-long standoff between the US and the Soviets over Moscow's plan to install a nuclear missile base in communist Cuba, just a few dozen miles off the Florida coastline. The brinkmanship from both sides was extreme, with the US blockading the Caribbean and seriously considering plans, ultimately vetoed by President John F. Kennedy, for a full-scale invasion of Cuba.
2: I have directed the armed forces to prepare
1: for any eventualities.
0: Declassified documents have subsequently revealed just how close we came to all-out nuclear war.
1: The reason the world still exists, as we know it, is partially because of luck. Professor Sergei Radchenko. There were moments where things could have gone off the rails, uh, indeed at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, consider this, the uh, Cuban leader Fidel Castro actually asked Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, to strike America preemptively, an idea Khrushchev considered completely absurd. But the the danger was not with Khrushchev actually using nuclear weapons preemptively in the first strike. Uh, in general, policymakers seem to be fairly sober when it comes to these things. The danger was an inadvertent escalation in the use of nuclear weapons in the heat of the moment, in the fog of war. For example, in Cuba, the Soviets had tactical nuclear weapons, something the Americans had no idea about. And if the Americans launched an invasion of Cuba to topple Castro and take out the Soviet missiles, as was uh, considered at the time, what they would have likely faced was uh, Soviet uh, uh, resorting to nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, to repel an invasion force. Now, that did not come to pass, but there were other dangerous moments.
0: Another such moment came when a Russian nuclear submarine patrolling the Caribbean lost communications with the outside world at the very height of the missile crisis. Suddenly facing hostile contact from a 12-strong American fleet, which was trying to force the sub to leave the area, the isolated Russian crew concluded war may already have broken out above the surface. The panicking Russian captain gave the order to fire a nuclear torpedo and destroy the entire US fleet. But the order was vetoed by his cooler-thinking second-in-command, a 36-year-old deputy commander called Vasily Arkhipov. A huge row broke out on board, but Arkhipov held firm. An accidental nuclear war was thus avoided.
1: Sadly, there were many instances when the world came pretty close. Uh, Yes, not every time we were on the brink, like during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I still think was perhaps the closest the world ever came to nuclear confrontation. But there were other moments. Consider, for example, that in 1958, uh, during the uh, Taiwan Straits Crisis, where the Chinese People's Liberation Army was shelling Jima Islands, held by Taiwan, just off the coast of China, at that time the american military leadership at least considered the use of nuclear weapons to stop the chinese but it was president eisenhower who decided against this Think also of the 1980s. Again, tensions were running high in Europe. The Able Archer exercise in November 1983 may have looked like a preemptive or a potential nuclear strike to the aging Soviet leadership, and they could have reacted to that, we now know, with a strike of their own.
0: The Able Archer exercise of November 1983 was a massive NATO war game. Essentially a practice drill for a nuclear war. So convincing that the Soviet Union genuinely believed the US was preparing a first strike. Soviet nuclear missiles were put at the highest state of readiness in response, ready to be launched at targets across America at the push of a button. We now know from the testimony of Soviet defectors that Moscow was absolutely on a knife edge. And unbelievably, only two months before that, On a rainy Monday evening in September 1983, nuclear war had come closer still, when out of nowhere, the Soviet early warning system reported five American missiles had been launched at their Russian targets. The duty officer in the radar base was a 44-year-old lieutenant colonel called Stanislav Petrov, and he had literally a minute or two's window to tell his bosses in Moscow to launch a retaliatory nuclear strike before it was too late. But his gut instinct told him this was not a real attack, and breaking all Russian nuclear protocols, he opted not to escalate the conflict. Instead, he sat tight and bit his nails. And he was right. The warning system had malfunctioned. It was a simple computer error. Once again, the moment of danger passed.
1: In part, it was luck, certainly. But I think uh, the Soviets also came to realize that, well, if things continue like this, we'll just blow ourselves up uh, nothing will remain. So after the Cuban Missile Crisis, both sides realized that they needed to talk, needed to negotiate. And the result of this negotiation was the first nuclear arms control agreement, which was the uh, partial nuclear test ban treaty signed in August 1963. Now, after that, uh, negotiations continued and we had the movement towards the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. And then after that, a range of other agreements, including the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, which was signed in nineteen seventeen to the ABM treaty and so on and so forth. So the strategic dialogue continued throughout the Cold War.
0: Was there some sort of informal channel set up so that they could avoid the sort of miscalculation or misunderstanding that might accidentally destroy the world.
1: Yes, yeah, so a hotline was set up between Moscow and Washington, a direct telephone line to the Kremlin. Uh, remember, this also played out in the, uh, in the dark comedy Dr. Strangelove when the American president calls what, what calls uh, the Soviet premier, what was premier, Pissov or Kissoff or something, and uh, he finds himself, finds him completely drunk.
0: Uh, hello, Dmitry. Di- hello, Listen, I I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little?
1: Oh, that's much better. A direct telephone line was established in order to facilitate communication based on the understanding that no matter how much the Soviet Union and the United States despised each other or whatever conflicts they had in various proxy wars around the world, it was in their joint interest to maintain dialogue in order to avoid direct confrontation that could have incalculable costs for the world.
0: Unfortunately, this remains every bit as true today. Despite the decommissioning of thousands of nuclear weapons during the late 20th century, despite the various arms control treaties signed by all sides, the stakes right now remain as high as ever they were.
4: The stockpiles of the United States and Russia are much, much smaller than they were during the Cold War.
0: Dr. Kristin van Brusgaard.
4: I think at the height of the Cold War, each of these states had up to approximately 30,000 nuclear weapons. And today, these two states, with the largest arsenals in the world, have uh, between four and 6,000 nuclear weapons each, depending a bit on how you count. That's not to say that there are still not risks associated with these stockpiles, and that these stockpiles are still very large. But relatively speaking, quite a lot smaller than they were.
0: Substantially, does that actually make much difference? I mean, presumably you can do a heck of a lot of damage with a few thousand nuclear weapons.
4: Many would argue, no, probably not. And that with the existing arsenals, both Russia and the United States uh, perceive and believe that they would be able to do what they would deem uh, necessary and that they are able to threaten a credible retaliation, including a massive retaliation for any uh, nuclear attack. So, of course, this is part of the reason why both sides have been willing to reduce their stockpiles to such a large degree, because at some point during the Cold War, uh, I think both sides realised that these stockpiles, the size of them, were basically pointless.
0: Through a combination of luck and judgement, the world emerged from the Cold War period without a nuclear weapon ever being fired. Does that mean that the mad theory was less mad than it sounded? Is it correct to say, as some have argued, that nuclear weapons actually made us safer from disastrous wars?
1: Well, it's it's partially correct.
0: Sergey Radchenko
1: John-Louis Gaddis, a historian of the Cold War from Yale University, calls this the Cold Peace, precisely for that reason that the nuclear weapons made it uh, less likely that a direct war would break out between the two superpowers. The late IR theorist Kenneth Waltz had this idea that the more states have nuclear weapons, the less likely the conflict or the potential for conflict. The controversial take, by the way, and here's why it's controversial, the more states have nuclear weapons, the more likely you'll have some sort of a miscalculation or inadvertent war or something like that. So I don't think Kenneth Waltz's take was particularly convincing. But here's the real tragedy here. Uh, Although superpowers avoided direct nuclear combat. They still fought their proxy wars, and those proxy wars in the so-called Third World, from Vietnam to Afghanistan to Africa to Latin America, to the Middle East, of course, those proxy wars cost millions of lives over the course of the Cold War. So to say that the Cold War was peaceful because of nuclear weapons would be to ignore the millions of people who died in proxy wars.
0: Now, all of this was meant to be ancient history. The Cold War ended... The Soviet Union collapsed, and as the 20th century drew to a close, Russia was shaping up more as a glitzy, if slightly shady, business partner for the West, rather than a military adversary.
3: If you remember in the 1990s, we had a rather more optimistic view of Russia.
0: This is Sir Simon Fraser, one of the UK's most senior former diplomats, who ran the Foreign Office between 2010 and 2015, before joining consultancy Flint Global.
3: We come out of the Cold War... That had been something which had shaped everybody's thinking about international affairs for so many years. And suddenly we're in this whole new landscape. And there was a lot of optimism that not only Central and Eastern Europe would be brought into this sort of democratic European family, if you like, but also that there would be progress in Russia uh, in that direction as well. And at some points there was even sort of optimistic talk about Russia joining the EU. Russia actually had joined the G8 And that process of bringing Russia into a closer relationship continued. But it began to go wrong. And of course, in 2008, we had the invasion of Georgia. We had the differences over NATO policy on potential expansion to Ukraine and Georgia. And then by 2010, things had begun to go in a different direction. And that was really from 2010, through to 2014, and the uh, problems in Ukraine and the occupation of Crimea, it was a steady process of deterioration of relationship, which led in the end to the removal of Russia from the G8. And in certainly in UK-Russia relations, a pretty frosty sort of atmosphere had set in.
0: Do you think trying to If I can put it this way, hug Russia close after the end of the Cold War was still the right thing to do, even if it's proved unsuccessful now.
3: Yes, I think it was the right thing to do. What was the alternative? Russia at that point, under both Gorbachev and then Yeltsin, remember, was signalling that it wanted a better relationship with the West. Don't forget that, you know. Uh, And of course, people have made many criticisms now saying we didn't take Russia seriously, we pushed the market-based reforms too hard, We were sort of too patronising, perhaps. You can make all those criticisms and there's something in them all, but I still think the basic aspiration, which was to modernise Russia's economy and bring Russia closer to us politically, was the right aspiration. Whether we handled it right is another matter, but it was the right goal.
0: So throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, the central strategy for avoiding nuclear conflict was assimilating Russia into the West as much as possible. During this same period, however, Moscow had been badly unsettled by the Western decision to allow some former Soviet and Warsaw Pact states in Eastern Europe to become members of NATO. The Western argument, of course, was, and is, that these were now fully-fledged European democracies, and had every right to join a defensive military alliance with like-minded neighbours, if they wished. But Moscow saw it as an act of aggression, that would essentially mean US military bases creeping closer and closer to Russia's borders. Indeed, two weeks ago on this podcast, the former UK Foreign Secretary David Owen told me that we can now see NATO's eastward expansion was a mistake, given how Putin has since reacted.
3: We need to ask ourselves whether we got the expansion of NATO right, and I don't think we did, frankly. In
2: 2008, George W. Bush committed NATO to allowing Ukraine and Georgia to come into
3: the NATO alliance. Up, up until then, it had been left an open question. Now, the historians will definitely say this was a mistake, that this should have been handled in a different way. It doesn't justify what Putin has done one little bit. Far from it. But I, I, I think we've got to recognise we missed some opportunities.
0: I asked a Simon Fraser, who in 2008 was the Foreign Office's Director-General for Europe and Globalisation, if he agreed.
3: Well, I think you need to look at two things. There was EU expansion and there was NATO expansion. Let's start with the EU expansion. I think that was a very sensible thing for us to do. After all, it was actually very strongly a British policy. Why? Because you had these countries which had been in the Warsaw Pact, which had suddenly sort of come out of it and had really nowhere to go. And we wanted to secure them and their societies as democracies, in the European family and frankly we thought we owed them that morally after everything they'd been through in the Cold War so I think that expansion was both sensible it had a sensible political objective and it was the right thing to do. Now of course uh, the, the further east it went and particularly when it went to Ukraine with its integrated economic relationship with Russia that became more contentious. NATO more difficult because of course it's a defensive military alliance and although we say it's defensive I think President Putin, for one, sees it as more offensive through his lens. Uh, I don't think it was wrong to expand NATO. I mean, countries asked for membership, and I think it's very difficult to say to European democracies, no, you're not going to join. But of course, there's always been this very difficult question then as to what is the eastern border of NATO and how far do you go. And we have countries like Ukraine and Georgia where it is really difficult which were actually not only occupied also packed countries, but actually were part of the Soviet Union at the time. It's difficult to expand NATO there without, I guess, incurring or creating a sense of perceived threat on the other side. Diplomats like yourself, if not literally yourself,
0: must have been making those calculations at the time you know, how will this be received in Moscow? Is this too provocative? Are we making a long-term strategic mistake by including, for example, the Baltic states? I mean, they must have been thinking about that stuff at the time.
3: Yeah, it was thought about at the time. Uh, of course, you know, it, it was a different circumstances at the time. You know, when you apply hindsight, you may think, well, we might, maybe that wasn't the right choice. But certainly in the case of the Baltic states, small uh, countries which were looking um, to the European Union were very close to the Scandinavian countries, Uh, I think there was a very strong reason why we uh, embraced them. Uh, Ukraine is a very different thing. It's a very large country. It's much more integral to the sense of of national identity of Russia, I I, I think. So I think you can draw distinctions between them. Often in diplomacy, it's not a choice between a right answer or a wrong answer. It's a choice between shades of grey. And, you know, wherever you draw the lines, you might always feel that you could draw them differently. There's no absolute right or wrong
0: Inside NATO itself, however, any suggestion that the eastward expansion might have made us less safe, might even have increased the chances of nuclear war, is rejected outright.
2: I, I fundamentally disagree with that. I think this is buying into Putin's narrative uh, and, in a way, false excuse.
0: This is Fabrice Portier, NATO policy chief from 2010 until 2016, and now chief executive of the political consultancy Rasmussen Global.
2: The real problem for Putin is that most of those countries want to be democratic, free and sovereign. That's his problem. He cannot stand in his kind of wicked greater Russia project to have a free democratic and sovereign Ukraine. It just doesn't fit in his project. It's not NATO membership or EU membership. These are excuses. It's just the notion to have a successful Ukraine at his door Actually, meaning that a lot of Russian people are going to look at you and say that this is a more interesting proposition. This is an open society. They're, the economy is interesting. They are working with the Western countries and so on. So this is what he fears most. So the notion that we should have not expanded and therefore not provoked Putin is, is, is a false one. For
0: Pottier, the West's strategic era was not the expansion of NATO eastwards during the 1990s and 2000s, But its failure to respond more robustly when Putin launched his first military incursion into Ukraine in 2014.
2: The big reality check was in 2014 when Russia illegally annexed uh, Crimea and and started also to occupy part of the eastern Donbass, the, the eastern part of Ukraine. I think that was really the watershed moment where everybody realized russia does not mean cooperative business Uh, russia is intent on achieving things including by using military force illegally
0: there is a perception here certainly in the uk that in retrospect the western and so i guess the nato response to 2014 was insufficient
2: do you share that view absolutely absolutely and I said that having contributed to the response, so I have a, a full share of responsibility here. But I was obviously I was aiming for more, uh, more in terms of NATO's overall posture. Uh, meaning, obviously, it's important to reinforce and to reassure the Eastern allies, especially the most exposed one, the Baltic states and then Poland, which at the time were really uh, very nervous and rightly so. But there's, there was a bigger picture, and the bigger picture was that. If Russia wanted, if Putin wanted, he could technically close access to some strategic areas for us, like the Baltic Sea or even the Black Sea. So I think on that, we could have been more ambitious in in terms of having a more comprehensive global strategy to push back and, and break Russia's capacity to blackmail us. Because the fear was that they could close the access to the Baltic Sea take a piece of territory like the Suvoki Gap, which separates Belarus from Kaliningrad, which is part of Lithuania, basically, and then kind of lock us into a blackmail of, if you move, we are going to use nuclear weaponry on you, or you just have to accept a kind of political settlement. And then, of course, I think on how to work with friends and partners like Ukraine. I think we have not learned that lesson that, yes, technically, Ukraine is not a member of the alliance. And we know why, because we we are scared to really fundamentally upset Vladimir Putin, that this is really a red flag for him and so on. But on the other hand, Ukraine is a European country. And and if you have a crisis in Ukraine, you have a crisis in Europe. And then we are seeing that now. I mean, this war is not war in Ukraine, it's war in Europe. You have uh, 1.4 million refugees flowing to European countries. You are going to have huge economic consequences of the current war. So the fact that we can somehow compartmentalize our security and say, you know, our security starts and ends at the NATO border is a bit of a short-term, very political way of putting it, whilst there's a bigger strategic reality. This is what Putin knows. And this is what he's been playing with, because he knows we are not willing necessarily to go all the way defending Europe and defending a, a certain idea of Europe and stability in Europe, and therefore, he's going for the weaker link.
0: Nevertheless, for Sir Simon Fraser, at least, the decision not to have offered direct military support for Ukraine was and remains the correct one, given the risk of a devastating and potentially nuclear war with Russia.
3: When we were discussing extending NATO membership to Ukraine, I was not in favour of it, precisely because I thought that it will be very, very difficult to apply Article 5 in the case of Ukraine, and therefore you need to avoid making false promises. Now that we're in that situation, I think it is right for NATO to say, look, we're going to support Ukraine in the ways we can, but we do have to be aware that if we were to, for example, impose a no-fly zone or get directly involved in military activity in Ukraine, the risk of a very significant escalation leading to a spreading of this war is very real and very great. And I think you have to take that cost into account and it's right to try to avoid that escalation. Now, that's very difficult for the people of Ukraine to hear, I understand that. But if you stand back and look at this strategically, uh, I think it's the right choice.
0: When you are talk about an escalation, you're talking about a full military conflict between nuclear powers and therefore a nuclear conflict, are you?
3: Well you are talking about a direct confrontation between uh, Russia and NATO countries and therefore yes a confrontation between nuclear powers that doesn't necessarily mean it would be a nuclear confrontation it could be a conventional uh, war but it would be a war that both escalated in terms of its gravity and spread geographically into other European countries with very devastating effects.
0: You can envisage I'm not saying this is going to happen, a conflict between the West and Russia where everybody agrees to fight but not to use their most severe weapons. Is that literally imaginable?
3: Yes, it is imaginable. Uh, you, you, could have a, you could have a conventional uh, war in which both sides recognise that they didn't use their nuclear weapons, but the risk of that is of escalation and miscalculation. And also the risk is that if, for example... President Putin, as would I think would be very likely, was losing that war, uh, then you uh, run the risk of him resorting to more extreme measures. And certainly within the military doctrines of the Soviet Union, the use of tactical nuclear weapons is not excluded. So that, that is a very serious problem. And I don't think it's good for Europe and I don't think it's good for the world to take that risk.
0: As Simon Fraser alludes to, Russia has been unusually explicit in actually stating, in public, certain scenarios in which it would be prepared to use nuclear weapons as part of a conventional war. Understanding these Russian protocols is therefore key to ensuring nuclear conflict is avoided as the current crisis plays out, as the deterrence expert, Dr. Kristin van Brusgaard, explains.
4: So the Russians have conveyed in the entire period after the Cold War, that their doctrine for nuclear weapons use is one that opens for the possibility of using nuclear weapons first. Uh, But they have been very explicit in saying that these are extreme weapons, and that they would only consider using them in the situation where Russia was under conventional military attack, and uh, under conventional attack of a certain scale, that would threaten the very existence of the Russian state. This is the formulation that they use. So there has been a debate in Western policy circles, I would say, particularly after 2014, after the first Russian invasion of Ukraine, about the potential threat that Russia could pose to Western countries and and about the role of nuclear weapons in Russian strategy. But uh, as far as I've been able to identify, and I've studied this issue in some detail, Uh, My impression is that the official Russian threshold for using nuclear weapons is relatively high and remains relatively high. But that's not to say that they will not sort of brandish their nuclear weapons in the way that we're seeing at the moment. I mean, we've seen the Russian leadership refer to their nuclear weapons and refer to the potential of a nuclear escalation of the crisis. And this is in part influenced by the fact that these nuclear weapons and the fact that Russia has them, is part of the Russian calculus regarding what the West is going to do in response to what Russia does in Ukraine. And there is, of course, a big debate about whether there is a potential for Russia to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine if we are to judge by their doctrine and by what they've conveyed before this conflict regarding their threshold for using nuclear weapons, then this is not the type of conflict where they would want to or would need to use nuclear weapons they should be able to achieve their objectives with conventional military means. In
0: your judgment, how much stock can we put in that protocol being adhered to? And how possible is it that they could go beyond that to use it in something like an invasion that's gone wrong?
4: This is the big debate. My impression is that President Putin has been adhering to Russian official uh, doctrine and the advice of his military advisers. For a long time, so his statements about nuclear weapons also in the past have been quite closely aligned with what has been uh, Russian uh, doctrine. And at the moment, even though we have seen references to nuclear weapons use, I still think that it aligns relatively well with what the Russians have conveyed before this as well, because they are making references to their nuclear weapons, they're making references to the potential of the escalation of crisis. But that is aimed at, as far as I can understand, influencing the Western calculus regarding whether or not the West should intervene in Ukraine. There are always things that we cannot know. And one of the questions that many are now discussing is, you know, what will an increasingly desperate President Putin do? And what kind of capabilities would he reach for if he conceives of the situation as pressed and where he conceives of, for example, A threat to his own regime. But my impression is also that even President Putin has made repeated statements about how nuclear weapons are a tool only for the most extreme situations.
0: Just as important as understanding Russia's nuclear weapons protocols is understanding the different types of nuclear weapon at Putin's disposal.
4: The Russian arsenal is what many perceive of as the world's uh, largest and it also contains a broad range of different types of uh, systems. Uh, So the brunt of the arsenal consists of these strategic nuclear weapons that can fly across continents, but then the Russians also have a large arsenal of tactical nuclear weapons that can also be delivered from the sea, from airplanes or from land-based platforms and that can travel shorter distances and that also have a lower yield in the actual nuclear warhead. So the Russians have a very wide variety of nuclear capabilities to choose from. If you were talking about, for example, the scenario where Russia would consider using a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, then uh, we would presume we we would be talking about one of these uh, tactical nuclear weapons and potentially one with a relatively low yield, and where the objective would be to try and shock an adversary into submission. And we do know that there has been deliberation among Russian strategists about that potential, uh, not these days, but in in the past. But a, a key disclaimer, those debates have been about a situation where Russia has been in a conventional war, where Russia is actually under attack with conventional weapons and where the strategists have talked about the potential of using one nuclear weapon or a small grouped uh, nuclear weapons attack against a conventionally superior adversary in order to try and shock that adversary into submission. So again, they have not talked about this potential in the context of a local conflict, which is how the Russians would describe the current situation in Ukraine.
0: And just so I'm clear what we're talking about, How small is a small tactical nuclear weapon these days?
4: There is a range of the potential yield of Russian tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, My impression is that most of them would resemble something along the lines of what we saw in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So that's a small nuclear weapon. In the modern context. Right,
0: so not that small.
4: Yeah, Yes, not that small. But then, having said that, they probably have the potential for using warheads with a significantly lower yield as well. But precisely how low the yield, I wouldn't be able to tell.
0: So those are the weapons available to Putin and the circumstances in which he might use them. Given all of that, I asked former NATO policy chief Fabrice Potier how nervous he thinks we should be about the current conflict escalating into nuclear war.
2: I think we should be extremely concerned. This is a precedent that a leader from a nuclear power is is floating. The use uh, uh, of nuclear weapons is putting his uh, uh, nuclear deterrent on, on a kind of high combat uh, readiness, uh, which fundamentally doesn't change the number of strategic submarines or strategic bombers operating, but it changes the the chain of command and and how instructions are given to potentially use those weapons. Uh, So I think we should take this seriously. But because we should take this, say, you see, we should not just sit and, and just, you know, be paralyzed. And this is what I sense from NATO leaders is there was a kind of muted response uh, to this. I think it is very important to kind of have some declaratory pushback, say that, you know, NATO is a nuclear alliance. We are not intending on using nuclear weapons in this conflict. But the use of nuclear weapon in this conflict will fundamentally change the nature of this conflict with devastating consequences. The fact that President Biden or, you know, some other NATO leader have not kind of spelled that out as as a kind of pushback really worries me. Why? Because then that means Putin is thinking that kind of work. My red line, my nuclear red line is kind of working because they're actually, they're really freaking out. So what will stop him from using the same nuclear red line, again, for a little 50-kilometer land grab, Lithuanian uh, territory just to connect Belarus from Kaliningrad? And, and this is a thing, you know, people have been saying, yeah, we cannot engage in nuclear escalation. Of course, we do not want to engage with nuclear escalation, but that's exactly why we need to reestablish some kind of balance in, in how we are going, to, how we are stating the, the, the huge cost of going that way for Putin. And the fact that we have not done it, I think it sets a dangerous precedent. This is where we need to relearn the language of deterrence, and not just conventional deterrence, but also strategic deterrence, because not speaking that language will actually create ambiguity in Putin's calculus, where he will think, oh, actually that works.
0: It's certainly true, as Dr. Van Brucegaard told me, that deterrence theory only works if your opponent has no doubt about your resolve to act. They need to believe, really genuinely believe, that the other side would actually push the button if under attack.
4: Evidently, the nuclear weapons states that are trying to make their threats credible uh, want to do as much as possible to convince the other side that they would respond in this way. Uh, So all nuclear armed states do a number of different things to try and make this threat as credible as possible. But of course, that doesn't mean that there isn't a debate about the wisdom of actually carrying out that kind of a a massive uh, strike. And let's just say that we hope we never find out.
0: This whole thing is kind of like a confidence trick, right? As long as both sides believe the other side would do it, then it works. But what happens if one side starts to suspect the other side wouldn't do it, which you sort of get the sense is the sort of thing that Putin might be wondering at the moment.
4: Yeah, so that generates a, a big problem in the system. And this is a part of the policy debate as it is uh, transcribed in in the Western community because some observers have conveyed this, that they they believe the Russians are not convinced that the West would respond to a nuclear attack. And my impression from the research that I've done on Russian strategy and Russian deliberations is that that's not the case. I think the Russians are still quite convinced that they would experience some type of a response. At least I'm absolutely convinced that they know that they wouldn't be able to predict the Western response, which is critical because if the Russians were to carry out a nuclear strike with impunity, they would have to be pretty convinced that this would be risk-free, that they would not risk a nuclear response in return. And I'm not at all convinced that that's where the Russians are. I think that uh, Russian strategists and military and political leaders have conveyed repeatedly that the risks such a policy would entail would be insurmountable and that the unpredictability of the escalatory pressures in that type of a situation would be significant, which is why I think that they have continued to convey that these weapons would be used only in the most extreme circumstances.
0: I asked Sir Simon Fraser if he's confident that Putin believes a further Russian incursion into an actual NATO country such as Lithuania would indeed elicit a full-scale military response, or whether Putin might think the West lacks the backbone to back up its words with action.
3: He may have thought that before. I believe he would now think that we would do it. We would respond. And and I believe we would, actually. I believe we would, because I think we now know that, you know, there's a point beyond which you really have to stick to your guns, and that would be it. And So I do think there is effective deterrence in the Article 5 uh, position, and all the actions that have been taken since he moved into Ukraine, I think, should lead him to conclude that that is the case.
0: So if we're going to continue to trust the deterrence theory that's guided us through the first 70-odd years of the nuclear age, there can be no hint of weakness within the defensive alliance and no suggestion that a full-scale response would not follow if Putin stepped over the line. But that alone may not be enough to prevent an escalation in Ukraine, as Christine van Brusgaard told me.
4: I'm concerned about the duration of this conflict. I'm concerned about the potential for what we call inadvertent escalation in the theater, that is that with the influx of NATO forces to the proximity of the conflict and with an influx of Western capabilities as well that are to be transported to Ukraine, that we could end up in some kind of situation where NATO forces actually came into direct confrontation with Russian forces. And in that scenario, I would be very concerned about the escalatory pressures and think that we would need to take very concrete steps in order to prevent that kind of a situation from escalating. I don't think that the Russian leadership at this point in time would be deliberating nuclear use in Ukraine. But of course, I mean, it's difficult to tell. You know, I can talk about what the official military doctrine says. I can talk about what the military deliberations about this doctrine has been uh, for the past decades, which is what I have been studying quite closely. So I don't think that the Russian military, the Russian general staff, for example, will suggest to Putin that we, this is the road we should go down. But I also don't know what the Russian military will do if Putin says, well, now the time has come for this option. And I'm not sure that his advisors, including his military advisers, even if they thought this was an unwise option, if they would protest
0: And do we know anything about the chain of command system? I think in most people's minds, there's a big red button next to the president that he can press if he ever wanted to do this thing. I'm I'm sure it doesn't work quite like that. Do we we know how it does work?
4: Well, we think we know some things, but again, uh, several aspects of this are quite uncertain. But uh, the information that is out there uh, indicates that it's not one big red button that President Putin can push and then something happens immediately. First of all, there is a need to ready the forces for nuclear launch. We saw from the statements that were made in the past week that there are different levels of readiness in the strategic forces. So he could change the level of readiness. He could also take measures to make his forces less vulnerable to an adversary strike. But we also know some part of his forces are kept on a more or less permanent readiness, as is the case in other nuclear weapon states, as well as is the case in the United States and in the United Kingdom, as far as I understand. But that pertains to the strategic forces. Then if we talk about the tactical nuclear forces, these are, according to Russian information, in central storages, these tactical nuclear weapons are not dispersed in the military units that would be using them. So in preparation of using any of those weapons, the Russians would have to start moving the nuclear warheads out of these central storages and out to the actual military. And then one additional point is that There is a debate about the chain of command and whether or not the Russian president alone could issue the order to launch nuclear weapons. And the information that I've seen so far indicates there are three nuclear suitcases in Russia. That is, that the president has one, the chief of the general staff has one, and the defense minister has one. And most of the information I've seen indicates that to issue an order to launch a nuclear weapon in Russia... At least two of those would have to be active. So as far as I understand, the Russian president cannot alone issue the order to launch a nuclear weapon. And in any case, his order would have to pass down through the chain of command before it would reach the military unit responsible for that weapon, evidently. It's different from the American system, for example, where the US president could in fact alone issue the order
0: so the Russian system has better checks and balances than the American one in theory and
4: that is my impression
0: interesting and 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 but as you suggest the military still has to actually do it you can issue the order but they still have to essentially agree to to do it yes yeah yeah this is kind of reassuring I guess but it really does get to the heart of one of the fundamental problems of relying on deterrence theory as the historian Sergei Radchenko told me This whole thing only works if both sides act rationally, even in times of crisis, and even in scenarios where they may already be using overwhelming military force.
1: Much of our thinking about strategic uh, deterrence and what circumstances nuclear weapons could be used and so on and so forth, they are premised on the understanding the other side is a rational actor. The idea behind MAD, mutual assured destruction, is that uh, uh, each side understands that its own survival is much more important than whatever other grievances they might have. And at the last moment, when push comes to shove, they'll stand back from the brink.
0: Is Vladimir Putin a rational actor? Increasingly, it feels like the jury's out. Was the last American president a rational actor? Will the next one be... And just as importantly, even if both sides are acting rationally, deterrence and rationality only go so far. During the 20th century, as we've heard, nuclear war was on several occasions only averted due to the wise judgement of certain well-placed individuals, or frankly, by sheer good luck. Clearly, this is no way to run a planet. So over the long term, the best chance of permanently avoiding nuclear war must be some sort of rapprochement with Russia, as was attempted, unsuccessfully in the end, in the 1990s and early 2000s. To finish the podcast, I asked Simon Fraser if he believed that might still be possible, assuming Putin sticks around, or whether we really are now into a second Cold War, with the constant threat of nuclear conflict hanging over us all.
3: First of all, I wouldn't make the assumption that Putin sticks around, because I think that this could well be the end for him, one way or another. He's overreached. I think he's made an error. it would be interesting to see how things develop within Russia. So it may well be that uh, he doesn't stay around. And and here's a very important point. If he doesn't stay around, we need to think very carefully about what comes next and how we engage with that Russia in order to de-escalate this sort of crisis. That's a very important thing. But um, regardless of that, I do think for the foreseeable future, we are going to be into a, a sort of new form of if you like, um, uh, Cold War or at least Iron Curtain in Europe, there is going to be a militarised border between Western Europe and Russia somewhere in Ukraine or on either side of Ukraine, at least in the short to medium term, until this plays through.
0: That's not a very settling future to look forward to in Europe, is it? Uh,
3: No, it isn't. Uh, It isn't. It's it's, It's a very unsettled... I mean, this is the most unsettled perspective that we've had since the end of the Cold War and, indeed, perhaps, you know, since 1960s and the Cuban crisis in terms of the direct threat that we're facing uh, uh, on the continent of Europe.
0: What a depressing conversation. Is there anything positive we can say to finish this? <laughs> well, I don't
3: think you should say it's... To, I mean, it's a reality that we're dealing with, and, uh, and the positive thing is that we are... Res- that the response has been very effective. The positive thing is that the Ukrainian people have behaved with extraordinary courage, uh, that they have actually, I think... Um, undermined the argument that Putin made about Ukraine's identity and its its non-existence as an independent state. So that is a positive thing. And the other positive thing is is the unity that other countries, not just the West, but into the whole international community, Japan and many others, have shown in responding against this. So you may, we may get from this the rebirth of a sort of sense of purpose and belief in our values and understanding that you can't just take life for granted and that we do have to fight and struggle to project and protect our values in the world. That would not be a bad outcome.
0: Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. These episodes are not meant to be time-sensitive, so why not have a look back through our back catalogue too, for others that you might enjoy. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week for our season finale, and I'll see you then.